0: Welcome everyone. I'm your host Emerson Green, and I'm here with John Buck. John, Yo. say hi. What's up? Um, we're here to talk about universalism and some of the philosophical arguments for and against it. So we didn't really come like prepared to no. have this conversation. I'm looking at you physically in person right now. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's kind of like great because like both of us have a sort of like passing interest in universalism. And so like we've thought about these, but like neither of us like had prepared statements or anything like that. And like, I I almost like wish I had a little bit
0: more preparation, but no, it it was a good conversation still we didn't like systematically go through like okay here are the main arguments for universalism and here are the main responses it's just this is like an ongoing conversation where we've talked about universalism like before you know on discord or twitter or something like that and we finally sat down to just have like a real debate about it but yeah we didn't like prepare for this it's just a conversation and uh we don't cover every single base but what did we talk about? Um, we talked about why I care about this in the first place as mm-hmm. an atheist, because I don't think God exists. And um, I am still talking about universalism like semi-regularly. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the free will response against mm-hmm. universalism. Like if you really believe in free will, then, you know, you can't guarantee that universalism is true. We talked about different models of hell that are, like, way more plausible than the maximalist strong version of hell.
1: We gave some of the arguments that are generally used for universalism, even though it doesn't cover, Mm -hmm. like, the entirety of, like, oh, here's another universalist argument that you can put forward, but...
0: Yeah. We talked for a long time, but we've been recording for three hours. (laughs) Yeah. I just looked at the timestamp. Patrons of Counter-Apologetics will also get to hear an episode about catholicism and universalism and whether they're compatible but yeah we uh we're just doing the intros here this is a peek behind the curtain Uh, this is this part you're hearing first actually came last yeah
1: but if you are a patron be sure to go listen to that as well because like oh it's interesting going over sort of the differences between protestant and catholic sort of conceptions of Mm -hmm. the afterlife
0: And if you're already a patron, head over to patreon.com slash counter and give me even more money than you're already (laughs) giving me, um, totally undeservedly. Um, well not totally undeservedly, it's a pretty good podcast, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's like
1: peak audio quality. (laughs) (laughs) It's only the third best podcast on panpsychism out there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad that you, so here are the two endorsements that I can put on the back of the book here um third best podcast about panpsychism <laughs> which by the way is the other one not this one <laughs> and, so, and the audio quality is good oh yeah so ringing yeah, endorsements th- from john book <laughs> <laughs> the walden pod podcast doesn't even qualify either dang no the walden pod one is the one about panpsychism this is counter apologetics right oh now. dang i didn't realize oh, okay it's the philosophy of religion one I We've mean, been talking about philosophy of religion for three hours. <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> I mean they're both on the Walden Pod channel, so they're the same for me on the YouTube channel. I don't, I don't listen to through like ipod iTunes or anything. Oh,
0: like you that. don't listen to the podcast? No, I you just listen YouTube.
1: to it on YouTube.
0: Okay, well the YouTube channel is called Emerson Green, not Walden Pod. So I'm yeah, okay, doubting that <laughs> as well. Fake fan. Wow, yeah, huge <laughs> fake fan. Um, I'm Walden Pod on Twitter though, and you're writer John Buck. Yeah don't follow him follow me so i can surpass redeemed zoomer <laughs> i'm only like 1500 behind him last i checked and i'm about um subscribers on youtube behind him so let's uh, get those numbers up I'm yeah let's get those super i'm gonna overtake him any day now
1: end of the year that's our goal
0: wow so this is the best intro ever <laughs> for any podcast so this is yeah universalism we're debating universalism loose debate loose debate unstructured debate yeah sure. Free range conversation about universalism. Enjoy. <laughs> okay, so I think that you can have free will and um, also get everyone into heaven eventually, mm. because well, for two reasons. First of all, I think that God could like convince us. Like, I think a an omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly loving being a is not going to give up on us Mm -hmm. and b knows what to say at the right time when to say it like you know when to give us space and like when to be more involved and like i think he can be in addition to being maximally knowledgeable and maximally Mm -hmm. powerful and maximally wise and all that i think because of that he can be maximally convincing Mm -hmm. so like i think that we can have free will and he can convince us to like freely choose to be in a relationship with him Um, if he is so motivated to do that so then the question is just whether he has the motivation and uh yeah so that's like a separate question but the second reason i think which seems to be more of like a common line of response among universalists well look we are totally within our rights to override free will if it's going to lead to some horrible horrible thing like everyone agrees that like free will like freedom and whatever sense you mean it, like a compatibilist sense or a libertarian sense, like it is some kind of pro tanto good to like be free. Mm-hmm. But like if you are like I heard Matthew Adelstein use this example when he talked to Andrew Horanich where he said, well, look, like if there's like a serial killer outside your door and like you don't know that. Yeah. All things being equal it's not good for me to like prevent you from leaving your house like i don't have the right to do that like you should have the freedom to leave your house if you want to but if there's a serial killer outside your door and you don't know that yeah then i can override your free will i can lock you up yeah to keep you away from that like i can like lock you in the bathroom or something and like that would be good and once you actually understood what why i did that Mm -hmm. you would thank me like Mm -hmm. when you came to your senses when you had more information yeah so like first of all this whole idea that like, well, you can't have universalism if you have free will. I think that's wrong because you can override free will if the uh, circumstances are right, like if the consequences would be terrible enough. Mm -hmm. And second of all, even if we have free will, God can be maximally convincing. And in the fullness of time, like I grant that like maybe if there are like time constraints, like you have to repent before your earthly death and at the moment of your death, you are either in one place or the other like that could be problematic but given that um we can talk about hypertime, where you know time just moves at a very different pace for you than everyone else um or like you're on another dimension of time or something and uh you could also talk about post-mortem salvation or you could talk about purgatory mm-hmm. so it just seems like that constraint is just not going to help the anti-universalist so what do you think about that uh response to like you can't have universalism if we have free will or you can't guarantee universalism if we Mm. have free will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So regarding your point about like the permissibility to withhold somebody's uh, use of free will, given the nature of the consequences. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like, that's why I think general uh, articulations of like the free will defense and things like that don't aren't, aren't quite right. Because like, just because somebody can, like, it's better in some sense that somebody is libertarianly free to do the good or the evil. seems like, yeah, you can still, like, prevent their evil from actually having lasting effects. What I'd want to say, though, is that given the consequences, that can be a significant error. But I I think there's still going to be instances of co-opting someone's free will that will be, like, deontologically impermissible. And, like, instances of that that I'd want to say is like, well, when you're let's say changing somebody's fundamental character or something like that, or like entering into a loving relationship. Like I don't think that a loving relationship is proper if like one party is sort of like manipulating the other to make it so that they enter into that relationship of some sort. Now you did bring up the case. Well, like maybe God could just convince somebody like God, here, let me give you this argument as to why you, you should like enter into eternal beatific vision with me. Um, I, I, for one, I guess maybe like my understanding of rationality is yeah maybe a little bit more permissible in that like somebody could be given a series of reasons for something and still withhold actually abiding by what would be the best thing for them to do.
0: It's funny to be like, well, really, this comes down to epistemic permissivism. Like, do you, (laughs) like, okay, given the same set of information, could you come to multiple different rationally permissible conclusions? It's like, okay, but I wasn't really imagining God, like, arguing you into a relationship. I was imagining him, like, convincing you to be in a personal relationship. Okay. Like, by, like, reaching out to you. Maybe not at, like, I'm not even trying to get into the hiddenness argument. Like, maybe not at every single moment or something like that. Like, he's always open to a relationship with you. Like, I don't need that for this. Like, it's just, like I said, he would know when to kind of reveal himself more to you. He would know when to give you space. Like, he would know how to, like, get you to voluntarily want to be in a relationship with him. Because he's goodness itself, you know, Mm -hmm. or he's like perfectly loving, even if he's not goodness itself. So it's like, of course, any rational being is going to want to be in a relationship with with him if he knows, if they know what's good for themselves. But he doesn't want to force it, you know, and he's not going to argue you into it. So like, but I can still see how in the fullness of time, he could convince anyone who's rational to be in a relationship with him.
1: Right. Yeah. So I wanted to bring this up because like... Uh, I think there are two good arguments for universalism, and both of them sort of map onto what you were saying there. Like, an argument could be posed that a person only ever chooses the lesser of two goods due to some privation of knowledge or disorderly passion that they have. God, being all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, would correct any lacks of knowledge or correct any disorderly passions that a person have has and would offer his full love to all so all shall be saved. So there's that sort of understanding that like, the reason that somebody might reject God is because of I don't know, some misconstrual of what God is. Like, You'll hear uh, Christopher Hitchens sort of talk about how he doesn't want to be in heaven because he thinks of God as a sort of like horrible dictator. Like big brother
0: kind of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so like, we could say that, the universalist could say that Christopher Hitchens has a misunderstanding of who God is. God is the good itself. Like everything that is good within the world comes from God or, or something like that. And it's because of God's willing it for, for, it, for it to occur. And so if you knew that God was like that, you would be like, oh, I do want to be around this person, actually. And so, yeah, given God's desire for all to be saved, he would provide everyone with all that information that they need in order to, yeah, be in union with them. And I do want to say that, yeah, within Catholic teaching, there is this explicit teaching that yeah god does desire for the salvation of all um and so yeah some people have used that to sort of argue for universalism even within catholicism yeah
0: yeah yeah like that because that was something else that i thought needed to be argued for like okay god because he's wise and all-knowing and omnipotent like he could be maximally convincing not in like an argumentative sense but like he knows how to like woo you into a relationship or like how to make you realize that you if, if you know what's good for you, you do want to be in a relationship with him, and not just because of the threat of the alternative or something, so yeah, given that, I think that God could convince people uh so the only thing that's missing is the motivation, but if that's just a Catholic teaching that he wants all to be saved, that answers that, I guess at least for Catholics but right. yeah, I mean like I, I agree with that argument where it's like if you don't want to be in a relationship with a being of perfect love, and that is because you don't know what that means on mm-hmm. some level like or because there's something like wrong with you so there it's either a yeah a lack of knowledge or there's like i think you said disordered passion or something Mm -hmm. so yeah i think that um that's the kind of thing that could be fixed like over time you know like even if god doesn't want to just instantly be like okay we're done with that lack of knowledge and we're done with that disordered passion like instantly now Mm -hmm. okay well let's say that he wants you to naturally find that out yourself Okay, or like naturally, like kind of rectify that disordered passion yourself. Sure. Well, that could happen in like the fullness of time, so long as you don't think this is all over the second after our earthly lives. Like the moment right. of death, that's it. No changes can be made. As long as you don't accept that, then all that stuff can be fixed. And God doesn't have to, like, oh, there, there's some kind of evil overriding this kind of freedom, you know, where he's just like changing your nature. And it's like, well, he doesn't have to do that. Like there's, there's plenty of time. <laughs> like, I yeah. mean, time goes on infinitely in the future. Right. So pretty sure there's plenty of time for you to rectify that lack of knowledge and for you to rectify that disordered passion. And God really wants you to be saved. So this is like Josh Rasmussen's argument or part of it, where he's like, why wouldn't God give you infinite chances? Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. like Why would he say you have 900 chances, but no more?
1: Right. Yeah. I was going to go into that. Yeah, that's the other like good argument for universalism that uh, Josh Rasmussen will defend as well as... Eric Ritan, yeah, he, he makes this case as well, that God would offer the fullness of his love to all and would never allow someone to cut themselves off from accessing his love. Given an infinite amount of time, whatever is possible will eventually become actual, so all shall eventually be saved. Um, yeah, I, I guess that second premise is maybe a little bit too strong. It's just it, uh, given an infinite amount of chances, somebody will eventually, yeah, become. And like given an infinite amount of chances and... If one of those chances is, like, non-reversible, then, yeah, eventually all shall be saved. And, like, yeah, I'm not sure I buy the idea that given an infinite amount of time, any possibility shall become actual.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I never understood why people said that sort of thing. Like, well, just given enough, given infinite time, everything that can happen will happen. Like, some people have that intuition really strongly. Yeah. And, like, I'm not saying I think it's wrong. I'm just saying... whatever they're seeing, I'm, like, not seeing it.
1: Yeah, because, like, I don't know, you can imagine, like, I've raised this example before. Like, suppose I have a coin that I'm flipping, and you could say that even if I've been flipping an an infinite amount of times, there's going to be some far end of the distribution of possibilities there to where, like, yeah, technically I've only been ever flipping it to be tails this whole time, which is, like, super implausible or super unlikely. But because it's unlikely doesn't mean it's like impossible. And I think there is this sort of idea that like anything super duper unlikely is just not ever going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe Eric Ritan will take a weaker form of universalism to say that like, look, sure, it's possible that there are some that are not saved at all. But it's just super duper unlikely (laughs) In, in the same sense that it's like super duper unlikely to having given an infinite amount of flips to always have it land on tails
0: yeah that's the same sense that i feel like hopeful universalists talk about Oh, it's possible, and Uh like that's kind of why it annoys me so much Uh because it it feels like they're saying, "Well, it's possible that I pick up that quarter and I flip a trillion tails in a row," and I'm like, "Who cares?" Yeah, like that's not going to happen. You know, that's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, and I can see how, like, yeah, to hope for something that's super duper implausible seems almost like irrational in a strong
0: sense and annoying when it's like (laughs) I'm trying to make arguments for universalism and they're Uh like, "Well, I hope it's true." (laughs) Like, yeah, me too. Who cares? Like,
1: I did want to go back and just sort of like provide that uh motivation on the catholic side because like yeah by saying that god wants for all to be saved i'm sure there's going to be plenty of catholics like well i don't know about that uh this is from the catechism paragraph 851 uh it is from god's love for all men that the church in every age receives both the obligation and the vigor of her missionary dynamism for the love of christ urges us on indeed god desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth That is, God wills the salvation of everyone through the knowledge of the truth. Salvation is found in the truth. Those who obey the prompting of the spirit of truth are already on the way to salvation. But the church in whom this truth has been entrusted must go out to meet their desire so as to bring them to the truth. Because she believes in God's universal plan of salvation, the church must be missionary. So I think as a Catholic, your committed to the uh, to the view that God does desire for the salvation of all. And I mean, I think,
0: it, it's stated literally, it perfectly explicitly in the catechism. Yeah. It's not even like subtext. Yeah. And even if you're a theist, I think you should
1: also say that because like if you think that God is all good, well what does all good mean? It means that like God desires for the good of all things. <laughs> so like if the perfect good of all human beings is going to be in perfect union with God, then God's going to will for that goodness for them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, based Vatican II Annihilator fourteen eighty eight is in shambles right now. Um, yeah. yeah, everyone <laughs> why are the converts always like that? It's I mean, like this is like a, a theme that's popped up. This is not like an original observation, but plenty of people have pointed out that like the converts to Catholicism seem like a lot more extreme and a lot more like on the Tradcath end of the spectrum. stuff that seems like internet brain damage to me and then like the people who are lifelong catholics are typically not like that yeah i mean probably
1: because like there's this sort of cultural component to catholicism to where like people that are raised in it it's almost like being jewish in a sort of sense that like yeah i'm jewish but that like how much do i need to know about my jewish
0: no but like even committed catholics like if they're raised catholic they seem to just not have the same kind of weird Mm. like Trent Horn comes into conflict with these people all the time, too, yeah. like the base trad accounts or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, OK, so that's one argument against universalism annihilated. <laughs> um, the fact that there are all these trad accounts that like <laughs> deserve eternal hellfire. Oh, yeah. I was talking about the free will thing. But no, I, I just mean the idea that like, well, you know, if you have free will, you can't really say universalism. Yeah. Like, And it's like, I don't agree with that at all. Which I guess maybe I should say something about, why do I care about this at all? Because I don't even think God exists. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so then your recent interest in universalism, is that just from your desire to like try to think about the best form of theism to hold in your mind? That way you're actually engaging with, like what is the most plausible form of this position I disagree with? And so that most plausible form of theism is going to include some sort of universal salvation.
0: Yeah, that's one reason. Because, I mean, I I engage with universalism for the same reason I engage with Christians who believe in evolution as opposed to young earth creationism. Mm -hmm. It is the same exact motivation. So, like, it's just kind of annoying to me, first of all, when I'm, like, trying to engage the best version of a view. And then Christians will, like, yell at me for doing that. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to be charitable to you. I'm trying to, like... Deal with the best and not the worst version, mm-hmm. because you really can't understand how implausible I think eternal conscious torment is. Sure. There is a zero percent chance of that being true, at least understood in like this strong sense that we can get into. Yeah, and annihilationism is better, but that's because anything would be better. Mm. And like universalism is really it. Like it's universalism or nothing. Another motivation is um, it is like the best possible way that the reality could turn out to be, for everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's like part of the reason I'm interested in theism is because it is kind of like the best possible outcome. Yeah. The reason I don't believe theism is true is because it is too good for the reality that we live in. Like Mm. the world that we live in does not reflect the thought that like at, at the foundation, there's this being of like perfect goodness and power and all that. I just don't think that the world is good enough for that to make sense. Like it just doesn't, what I know about the world, it just doesn't drive with that idea. True. So when I think about universalism, it's like, well, that does kind of salvage it a little bit, but okay, so the, it is like the best way reality could turn out to be, and a lot of people who are really smart take it seriously, and I want to be intellectually honest and look into it, not just be dismissive and everything. Mm-hmm. Um. So the third reason is not really noble. It's not really like, well, I'm just being so charitable. You know, It's a shame people can't recognize what I'm doing. The third reason is more like, um, this is just like a covert way of making arguments against theism. Uh, Like this is just a different approach to making the same arguments that I've been making my entire adult life as an atheist, Mm. which is like, here's one piece of the theistic picture. Here's another piece of it. Here's another piece of it. These cannot all be true. Like this is like an inconsistent triad or like Mm -hmm. this belief and that belief are not reconcilable. So like when I talk about universalism, half the time I'm talking about like arguing against Christianity. Right. Because for most people, universalism is a no-go zone. They, they will never take it seriously at all. And if you argue for universalism, that is de facto arguing against Christianity. Mm. So, like, sometimes I'm being charitable. I want to even say, like, half the time, like, I'm earnestly exploring theism in its best forms. I'm not just going to reject the dumbest, worst forms of Christianity and theism and say, job done. Mm. I want to explore the best forms. Um, I'm just making arguments against Christianity the other half the time. Like, mm-hmm. I think that Christianity is internally incoherent. Like, if you really take seriously the view that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and Scripture forbids universalism, I'm like, oh, so Christianity is internally incoherent then. Mm. Like, once you take that, maybe there's more to it to, to draw out the incoherence. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm saying that belief about God, this kind of, like, maximalist omni-God, yeah. combine that with this view of Scripture where it's like, It is completely haram for Christians to believe in universalism. Maybe you need one or two other parts of the puzzle, but I'm saying, like, these cannot be squared. Sure. So this is an argument against Christianity. It's just a different way of making the argument. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, that is interesting. Yeah, it's, like, specific to Christianity. It's like, look, universalism is the most plausible form of theism, but Christianity doesn't allow for that, so Christianity is much less plausible now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, if I say, like, well, if you love someone very much, you will not have them tortured for all of time, and you will not even let them freely choose to be tortured. So if Christianity requires you to believe that, yeah. then it's asking you to believe this totally absurd thing that can't possibly be right. But like, Christianity does have the resources to just... That's, that's a non-problem for mm-hmm. David Bentley Hart. Like, yeah. it just... It makes no sense. Like, if you think of God as a good father, right, the idea that he would let you walk towards this like infinitely deep pit of torture yeah i'm on the one hand exploring the more plausible forms of christianity on the other i'm arguing against the less plausible forms of christianity but here's the thing for a lot of people that just is christianity sure like for some people arguing against young earth creationism is equivalent to arguing against christianity Mm -hmm. and i'm saying for an even greater number of people arguing against an eternal hell or eternal separation from God in every sense or like in the worst senses, Mm -hmm. that is akin, that that is equivalent to arguing against Christianity. Well, that's what I do on this podcast. I argue against theism and against Christianity. So this is just kind of like a a fun way of doing it. Okay. So I'm like accomplishing, I'm like, you know, it's two birds with one stone. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if you wanted to also add in another thing, like maybe you think that, I don't know, helping people see the truth even if they hold to other false beliefs is like still better like oh you believe in theism but you don't believe in universalism but i think that if theism were true then universalism would be true i want to help you sort of like see that as well even though i don't believe in theism i still want to sort of like help contribute towards our our accepting of true beliefs now
0: yeah yeah i mean that's like a uh That's why I sometimes call myself a conditional universalist, where it's Mm -hmm. like, well, look, given the truth of theism and Mm -hmm. given the truth of Christianity, then universalism follows, you know, or given theism plus whatever it is, then universalism follows. Um, Because I don't know if it's just theism. I think, like, theism does raise the likelihood of something like, an afterlife Uh and a good afterlife as opposed to a bad one, which is kind of, you're in the ballpark of universalism there.
1: Yeah, 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 no, that makes sense, yeah. But similar to, like, your desire to, I don't know, deal with the strongest forms of the positions that you disagree with, I want to say that, like, universalists in responding to, in, in making their case for universalism tend to go against the low-hanging fruit in my opinion like they they go towards the infernalist the traditional view of hell which is respect uh, is like fair given that like that's a majority of christians do hold to that view even at a sort of like lay level but i think that like in order for universalists to uh, maybe make a better case for their arguments is like really standing up against the more plausible forms of infernalism or non-universalism that are out there and so i'd want to uh throw out just as a reference for people uh there's this uh episode on kyle allender's channel christian idealism where myself caleb cumberland and him uh all came on to sort of talk about forms of hell that we find morally plausible like ideas of yeah technically all the conditions of hell are technically met in that like not everyone will be eternally saved but it's still not awful. It's not just being raped in yeah. hell forever. Yeah. It, it, it's like uh, there's three different views that uh, were put out there. Kyle's uh, understanding of hell. or And these are all sort of speculative. Uh, so we're open to changing on, on our opinions on them. Uh, Kyle's view of hell is a sort of restorative notion of hell, but not to the point of a the beatific vision, but at least to a sort of natural happiness. People who die in a state of mortal sin will have to go through some sort of purgatorial transformation of character to the point that they can attain a happiness, but it's not a beatific happiness uh, of the divine life of God, but it's just a sort of natural state of happiness that's there at the top level of hell, essentially uh that's but his, his, i mean his, yeah, how is
0: that hell though like you, oh you've achieved this state you've gone through purgatory and now you're in this state of eternal natural happiness it's yeah. like that just sounds like two-tiered universalism sure yeah yeah
1: and, and, yeah you could say that it, yeah um i think what would qualify it as not being hell or sorry not being heaven and thereby being hell is the fact that well It's eternal separation from God, like in its fullness. I
0: guess if by heaven you mean the beatific vision and you mean full union with God, then yeah, not everyone's going to heaven. Yeah. But they're still going to end up in a state of natural happiness. Right. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, that would be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, I I think that's a plausible form of hell, I guess you could say. And yeah, maybe it it could be argued that "Eh, that's technically a kind of universalism because at least people's lives on the whole are for the good or like a benefit to them because they do attain a sort of actual state of happiness. It's just not a perfect happiness in union with God. Um, so, yeah, maybe for a lot of universalists, they would say, yeah, that's technically a type of universalism, Yeah, which, yeah, that's a fair point, and maybe that's a point of sort of, like, convergence that could be made. Uh, my friend Caleb, he also made the case for a sort of semi-annihilationism, the idea that those in hell, their consciousness will sort of, like, they'll be put in a sort of state of eternal slumber of some sort. And so that can make some sense as to, like, well, why is it that the people in hell don't change their mind it's like well they're not conscious so that's why they can't change their mind they're they're not awake or experiencing anything to have their mind changed about
0: and then my view why would you not just annihilate them like why are they just going to sleep and then are, are they dreaming or is it like a dreamless sleep it or could what? be
1: yeah like a dreaming sort of state uh or completely absent of consciousness but they're still existing and i think the idea is like he's sympathetic towards annihilationism as well but there's a sort of idea especially within catholicism that annihilationism is sort of off the table given the idea that god wouldn't destroy immortal souls like us and so yeah they're they're still in existence and so but they're just not experiencing things for all of eternity
0: i see Okay, I didn't realize that was off the table because it annihilationism seems like the most scripturally supported view if you're just like mm. reading through the New Testament and like, I don't know, it just seems like annihilationism seems like the uh, Christian view in Mm. the new Testament. I mean, it seems like the one that has the most prima facie scriptural support to me at least.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's like the verse in scripture that Jesus tells them, like you fear those that can destroy the body, but you should fear those uh, he who can destroy both the body and soul. And so that doesn't seem to like leave open the possibility or maybe a sort of implicit threat there (laughs) that like the soul shall be annihilated Uh, or at least that there's that possibility that's there. um, yeah, I think my like aversion towards annihilationism is similar to your like intuitions regarding universalism, is that is like is that like fully loving to the individual to just let them pass out of existence? Is yeah, it-
0: like if you ever love someone so much that you killed them for basically no reason. <laughs> like it's like look, you they don't have to be in a state of like horrible agony. Right. They can just go on like I'm currently not in a state of horrible agony mm-hmm. and also not in heaven. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so you do not need to kill your children right? just because they're not going to be in the best state ever. You know, it, it, I'm just saying like there are not just two possibilities here, like the best state ever, the worst state ever. Mm. Um, and it's just God is just too loving to let you be in the worst state ever if you can't be in the best state ever. So he's going to kill you. Yeah. It's like, OK, two things wrong with that. One, it makes no sense to kill someone because you love them so much unless they're in like you know some kind of horrible state of agony and there's oh, no okay. possibility for ending it or something sure. like that the only out is death then like yeah like if like if you were like if you've ever seen like a war movie where someone's like on fire and then they like mm-hmm. shoot themselves or their friend shoots them or something yeah, like yeah. that like yeah that makes sense but yeah. like god has more options than that so like it just annihilationism just makes no sense on those grounds but also just the idea that it's really on the whole good to have someone miss out on an eternity of bliss because Uh it's not just that you are avoiding this bad thing it's like you are also missing out on this good thing which i think is something like that needs to be justified like if you can have some kind of wonderful outcome at basically no cost to you then why you're not doing that needs to be justified like if you're going to the trouble of like annihilating souls or like You're resurrecting them so you can annihilate them or whatever the annihilationist view is. If you're going to all that trouble, that, you know, needs to be justified. Like, why are you causing them to miss out on an eternity of bliss or causing them to miss out on an eternity of at least not torment? It's like these are all coherent options that are on the table and you're choosing to kill them. It's like, what justifies that? Like, it's it's bad because they're missing out on this good thing. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see, like, the motivation for doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and then just to finish it, uh, the, the view that I sort of laid out, I call the inhibitory model of hell, which is the idea that, like, sin or, like, moral error is something that corrupts the individual that's performing that sin to the point that people who... Live out a life of sin will basically be corrupting their own nature to some extent, to the point that, like, yeah, God will retain them in existence, but will, I guess, diminish their faculties to the point that they are no longer recognizably human, I guess you could say, or no longer recognizably human in the sense of being a rational animal. Their, their, like, moral faculties have been, like, deprived. That way, they're no longer capable of sin. They basically become a moral patient at that point. And I guess the idea for that is like, well, say, yeah, somebody is just perfectly willing to corrupt their moral character to the point of being an evil person. That's not the sort of thing that you should. Like, if you love that person, you wouldn't want them to continue having that sort of moral character. And yeah, like, it would be great to reform their moral character. But if you, like, respect their autonomy and, like, think that, like, oh, they don't want to undergo a significant amount of moral reform. I should still try to provide for them a happy life, but I don't want to provide them with happiness in this sort of state of moral error. To like, if you like make somebody who is like Ted Bundy, uh, like perfectly happy in their current like attitudes towards the world, that's like doing a bad thing. But if you were to like deprive Ted Bundy of his reasoning capabilities and provide him like a, a simple life of happiness as like a chimpanzee or something like that, then that's like, you're still benefiting them in some respects. Um, So the idea on the inhibitory model of hell is that, yeah, sin does corrupt us. Like uh, there's a sort of Aristotelian virtue ethics idea that like you become how you behave or you become what you practice. And so people that practice moral iniquity become non-human in a sort of sense like if you are a rational animal and you continually act outside of what would be rational for you to do you become inhuman in in a true sense so yeah that that's a view of hell that i i guess it's similar to the um limbo view of hell but maybe like a step lower because the idea of limbo is that like in your current state as a rational human being you can attain a sort of natural happiness but like for these for the damned they like undergo a significant devolution to where they're no longer a rational individual but they are more like an animal and i think that that animal can enjoy a life of happiness in let's say like the new heavens or the new earth um but it's not a sort of happiness that is it's not the beatific vision yeah anyway i just wanted to bring those up because like i think that universalists in their sort of like rational and and fair criticisms of infernalism don't engage with the most morally plausible views of hell that i think are still on offer um like i think the the case for universalism is a lot stronger if it's just okay eternal torture versus universalism universalism seems like obviously the way to go Mm -hmm. but if it's like universalism versus one of these three options it's like well i mean i can see how universalism is better but it's not necessarily like as obvious as like oh well that must be the case. And so I'd like to see universalists actually engaging with more nuanced conceptions of hell than just what's sort of out there at a lay level.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the strong view of hell that we're like kind of agreeing is like really implausible. I, someone laid it out once as like four theses. Hang on, let me look it up real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah. I so, eternal. Oh, I'm just The strong view of hell is, one, the anti-universalism thesis, some persons are consigned to hell. Two, the existence thesis, hell is a place where people exist if they're consigned there. Three, the no escape thesis, there's no possibility of leaving hell and nothing one can do to change or become in order to get out of hell once one is consigned there. And four, the retribution thesis, the justification for hell is retributive in nature. Hell being constituted to mete out punishment to those whose earthly lives and behavior warranted. So some people go there. It's a place where people exist and you cannot escape. There's nothing you can do or change or become to get out there to get out of there once you're there. And you're there for like retributive reasons. But sure. anyway, so it's bad you can't get out, you know. Some yeah. people are there. So that's like the strongest view of hell that's like on offer and um yeah, that is the one where it's just like if you can't see how there might be a tension between, um, like standard theistic beliefs and that, then it can be spelled out for you. Like in a, that all shall be saved or, um, you know, like Andrew Horonich's book or like, you know, other universalist works. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of view where you're saying like, yeah, yeah, we get it. Like, that's not true, but that's not the only view of hell that's out there. Like there are weaker views, like yeah. C.S. Lewis's view, you know, where, sure. yeah. um, you, you are free to like it, like C.S. Lewis's view rejects the no escape thesis. Mm -hmm. you know and like your the three views you outlined reject one or more of those theses that the strong view accepts so it's like there are better views of um hell and if universalists want to be convincing then you can't just beat up on the strong view of hell and i mean to be fair to universalists they do engage with it it's just like when you start looking at it online yeah it's just like a disproportionate amount of time is spent on like these ridiculous maximalist versions yeah, yeah. of hell which to be fair lots of people believe in that yep. kind of hell so like it's worth doing but yeah, it's really important. if you ever want to take the next step like it's there in the literature but it just seems like in podcasts and like on youtube and stuff universalists are typically not going that far beyond like you you spend all your time arguing against like a very strong version of hell and um then you say a couple words about you about annihilationism and then like that's right that's how most of those podcasts go
1: yeah especially since yeah as you were bringing up like well straightforward reading of scripture you can definitely get a sort of annihilationist reading of hell out of it and i do think that a lot of protestants nowadays are much more lenient towards annihilationism as their conception of hell especially if they have like thought about (laughs) thought about it at all (laughs) like recognizing oh wait actually eternal conscious torment does sound kind of bad and i don't know if i'd want to worship a god that does prescribe people or just like
0: you know like David Bentley Hart made this point to me first and I guess it I mean other people have said it but it clicked with me first with him where he's like look over and over again we're told in Christian scripture and tradition that like we're supposed to view God as kind of a father figure like uh-huh. our relationship to God is kind of like that of a father so if you try to think about like what would a good father do um and what would he not do then the strong view of hell is just completely off the table like Josh Rasmussen gave um this one analogy where he's like, you know, imagine a playground where there's a big pit at the middle of the playground and it's infinitely deep. And you think like, Oh, well, do I have to respect the free will of my children? You know, who like don't really even understand the consequences of what they're doing because how could they? It's like, yeah. So are you going to like, let them play around the pit and maybe even fall in the pit and just let them fall forever? Or are you going to board the pit up even like, maybe you let them fall in, but then you yank them out. Just the idea that you're, that like some kind of free will response is sufficient to be like, yeah, let the kids play around the infinite pit. It's like, no, a good father would not do that, obviously. And then there's just, you know, there's all this other scriptural justification, like the prodigal son or like the book of Jonah, where it just seems like, at least to me, there's just such an unambiguously like universalist message, or at least like the doors are always open message, Mm. like a rejection of like the no escape pieces um jonah i think is just <laughs> about people who reject universalism but the <laughs> prodigal son thing is like
1: you know oh yeah so yeah. like jonah would be the, the thomas in heaven like frustrated that like well these people are like saved when they, they,
0: you were supposed to punish them yeah no because god saves all these bad people at the end who don't deserve it right and then jonah is so disturbed by the idea that god that there's grace and that he like saved people who didn't deserve it he's so upset by this that he's like wailing and he's like, it would be better if I was dead right now. Like just throwing a temper tantrum. And it's just like, when you listen to the reactions of Christians to universalism, it's like, that is it. They are exactly Jonah wishing for the destruction of like other people. They're like, God, I want you to die. Like I want you to suffer. And then they're really upset that God forgives bad people. And it's just like, I feel like that's just like Sunday school Christianity. Like we don't deserve it. And then God saves us anyway, even though we don't deserve it. Like, that's what I was taught. And then, like, the objection to universalism is often like, well, what the hell? You don't deserve it. You didn't. (laughs) didn't, (laughs) I will not stand idly by while you portray God as some sort of all forgiving monster. (laughs) (laughs) What they said is illegal or ought to be. (laughs) Uh, What what is his real name? Bob Odenkirk. I was about to say Saul. (laughs) (laughs) I love Saul. No, um. Yeah, or, like, Andrew Horonich told me this story, like, when I interviewed him, where he's, like, you know, all these people are at the pearly gates, and they're about to get let in because they said the magic words, uh. and they have their Willy Wonka golden ticket, like, getting into heaven, and then um, it's announced that, um, you know, basically, like, the story of Jonah, like, all these, like, mm-hmm. bad people, like, everyone you ever met is going to be also led into heaven and they start wailing and crying and gnashing their teeth and then like it turns out that just is hell yeah (laughs) it's just like taking the anti universalists and telling them universalism is true and then their reaction is hell <laughs> that's just what it is <laughs>
1: so hell is just for all the people frustrated about how <laughs> everyone's saved by universalism. Yeah. no there's that other parable as well that christ gives uh, talking about the the different uh workers the the wages that were all given <laughs> like they were all given the same wages even though they worked a different amount of times and then they were like given in the wrong order to where like the people that were there first they were paid their normal wage and then by the end like oh i worked longer i should get a higher wage even though we agreed to this beforehand and then they get frustrated by the fact that like hey these guys just came in out of the like what at the end of the yeah. like uh, of the day and they only worked an hour but yet they're still paid the same as me
0: that's not fair i'm yeah, yeah. i'm mad. <laughs> and like the prodigal son like he had a brother who was mad that yeah. their father was throwing a big party mm-hmm. and he's like i never left and spent all your money and like embarrassed you and like did all this stuff yeah. and like you didn't throw a party for me and then like the father has a justification for that, but it's like yeah, that's like a consistent theme in scriptures. Like not just that we're supposed to view God as a father, but that like he saves people who don't deserve it. And then people mm. who feel they don't deserve it either, but they feel like they deserve it more than those other assholes, right. they get really indignant about it. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's like a consistent theme. Yeah. Okay, so there are obviously a ton of arguments for universalism that we have not covered. There were just a few points that I wanted to raise with you because there are things we've talked about before, mm. but, um, you are not a universalist, right? So, I mean, what are your reasons for, uh, rejecting the truth of universalism?
1: Yeah. So I will
0: say like, I
1: come from a background tradition and in being connected to that tradition, I want to hold it up and respect its teachings. And so there is a sense in which like, yeah, if I wasn't like, catholic if i was just some like general theist i i i could see how yeah i have no prior commitments or anything like that and have no like dogmas that i'm trying to defend or anything like that and so like yeah i could see why i might defend universalism or something like that but in thinking of god's like connection to the human race and like revealing things to them i'd want to i don't know try to defend what i think that god has sort of taught the church and in thinking that christ sort of like works within the church through history the Catholic Church has not accepted universalism, and that doesn't automatically mean that universalism must be false. It could very well still be the case. It would just be kind of unlikely if it were true, and that's well, not not, a reason- not just
0: because you're like you know betting on Catholicism being true. Catholicism has not like ruled out universalism, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't affirmed it, but it hasn't said that you can't believe it either.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you take the tradition as like, even though it's not like dogmatic given the fact that like a significant amount of the tradition has not treated universalism as like what's possibly or probably the case that could give you reason to think oh this is maybe not part of the tradition and now that gives you no reason because <laughs> you're not catholic you don't give a shit <laughs> like what oh if catholicism teaches like universalism is false well then catholicism was probably false i I just wanted to bring up that's probably that's like a component to like my thinking and i want to sort of defend the church's teaching in this regard but i also want i I think there's philosophical reasons to reject universalism as well
0: there are no such reasons but just to be clear (laughs) yeah, the primary reason is tradition and scripture right i
1: think that like i have a sort of commitment to defending the teachings of the church and one of those teachings is like by my lights not universalism so i want to like make a case for why not universalism, is but a plausible view.
0: You didn't mention scripture, though. Is that not a part of it?
1: Yeah, yeah. That would be part of it as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Catholic, you don't care about that. <laughs> but, um, so, okay. So, because the thing is, the most common answer is like, yeah, I can see like some of the force of these arguments, but like the scriptural data, quote unquote, sure. is like incompatible. Um, but yeah, I mean, the scripture is like the biggest hindrance for, I mean, everyone who I've talked to about universalism, where you eventually start to wear them down. They're like, okay, but it's just, it is clearly not unambiguously affirmed in scripture. Everybody should be able to admit to that. It's not unambiguously affirmed. And some people think it's just outright, you Mm. know, rejected in scripture sometimes they say like jesus said it's not true Mm. you know so scripture and then so scripture and tradition are basically like the two most common reasons and sometimes you get these pathetic philosophical arguments against (laughs) universalism which i think you're about to yeah uh, yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i want to sort of like start from an understanding of like what love is and thinking that yeah god is all loving and is love itself Um, there's a sort of ethical component to love that you cannot like force someone into a sort of loving relationship. And so in order to be in a loving union with someone, that must be done like consensually between both parties. And if universalism was, was true, I would think that because the impetus for love doesn't come from the individual that is in a state of mortal sin, it would have to come from God. And so there is a sense in which like, that's a sort of manipulation on God's part to like make them into the sort of person that wants to love God now. And that, by my lights, is a sort of like unethical use of power on God's part. Like I think I can agree that God could change uh, someone's character so that they desired to be in perfect union with God. But if that person has already sort of explicitly stated or taken the position that they don't want to be in that sort of union, then how ethical is that for God to put them through this, some situation or circumstances to where like, oh, you didn't want to do this, but I'm going to make it so now you do want to. And so there's a sort of like ethical concern for at least some forms of universalism. There, I think there's other forms that might not fall into this domain, but uh, at least like a sort of lay level understanding of universalism, I think that this argument might abide uh, or apply to.
0: So I feel like that was already kind of answered with the free will stuff because, I mean, do you think it would be unethical for me to, like, prevent you from leaving your apartment or your house? Like, I just say, no, you can't do what you want. Well, yeah, it, that would seem yeah. wrong for me to just be like, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but if I have knowledge that you don't have, yeah, then it, it can be justified for me to, like, do something that would, you know, all else equal, yeah, that would be wrong for me to do that but I know something that you don't know. There's Mm -hmm. a serial killer who's like trying to track you down and he's right outside. And if you go outside, then you're going to, you know, fall into his clutches. And it's like, okay, well that's information I have that you don't have. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be totally fine for me to like kind of override your will Mm -hmm. on that because you just don't know what's good for you. And once you're kind of, once that deficiency of your knowledge is filled in, you'd be like, thank you. For You know, you wouldn't be like, oh, I'm resentful that you did this or something. You'd be like, it's a deficiency of your knowledge. And if you, for some reason, if that knowledge, that lack of knowledge can't be rectified, then I'm totally within my rights to just override your will. But I don't know why I wouldn't just rectify the lack of knowledge. Yeah, Like you're rational. I can just say there's someone trying to kill you out there. Don't go out there. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have to stop you. I would just tell you that information. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying like, if some rational being is like, I don't want to be in a relationship with God who is a being of perfect love. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. A being of perfect love and rational being. I mean, those are kind of the two important components there. Yeah. You're a rational being and you're saying, I don't want to be in a relationship with a being of perfect love. Well, that's either because you're lacking some kind of information or knowledge, which could be rectified, and I don't see what's immoral about forcing that knowledge on you. hmm and if it's if it for whatever reason, if it's important that you figure it out for yourself, then okay, you can figure it out for yourself eventually. W- why is that not possible? You know, So I feel like God could force that information on me, and he could I could also come by it by my own lights. I mean, like either way, I could come by this information, like it's forced on me, or I figure it out for myself in the fullness of time. Either way, this deficiency of knowledge and information could totally be filled in, and then I would see, oh, well, I just don't know, I d- when I said I didn't want to be in a relationship with God, it was because there was something I just didn't know. Right. And if it's if it's not that, then it seems like, you know, you used that phrase earlier, like disordered passions or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of like a deficiency in your character. Right. And it seems like that can be something that can be rectified, again, either by God or by you, like with enough time and with enough, like enough moral development know like a purgatorial kind of hell like again this is a standard universalist position like mm. purgatory is for fixing that stuff about you you know yeah. um i mean to put it like kind of crudely right like if it is something to do with your character and your nature and like your heart well then isn't that what purgatory is for like that's the point of it so i'm saying like if it's some pro if it's some deficiency within you whether it's knowledge or intellect or Um, something like moral, like something about your character, those are all deficiencies that can be rectified in purgatory, which is the standard universalist view of like hell is kind of a purgatorial state or place or whatever. Um. So, yeah, I mean, given all that, I just don't see the force of this at all.
1: Okay. Yeah, I I can definitely get how if you're preventing somebody from falling into like a, a deep, dark pit or like being killed by a serial killer or something like that, then yeah, you can inhibit their will to some extent and hopefully or just tell them hey don't do that and if they're like they don't believe you're or something like that then it makes sense to like okay well don't do that because i know that this is not going to be for the best for you it's going to be really bad for you and things like that um models of hell that aren't like horrible tor- uh, like tormentful suffering for all of eternity maybe that sort of analogy won't be as applicable because like oh You're not going to enjoy the beatific vision. You're not going to enjoy the deepest state of happiness. I'm going to now co-opt your will so that you will learn to want to be in that state. Well,
0: when you say co-opt your will, I think it's important to be like, okay, what exactly is happening? Well, like you said, there's some disordered passion. Like there's something about your character that is deficient. Like maybe you're like too selfish or something. Sure. Or, um... I don't know, you could like desire, you know, hurting other people or something like that. I think that, you know, morally normal, like adults can see what's wrong with that sort of thing. Mm. And, um, I think it's just kind of standard moral development to just be like, to be able to change for the better and then look back on it and be like, wow, I, that was not good when I was like that. And I just don't see why there's some kind of hard limit here where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you have some kind of character flaw or something and God is effectively just going to give up on you or something because that would be co-opting your will like it sounds like what's necessary is just moral development yeah and i mean what's the cutoff point you know because all that's really required is moral development not co-opting your will and kind of like taking you over like a robot or something it's like no it's just needed is some more moral development and the way that you get that we're pretty familiar with it's like there are friends and family and, like, mentors and, like, exemplars. Like, there are people who inspire you to be yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, I don't see why the course of moral development on Christianity would have to, like, suddenly stop mm. at the moment of death. True, yeah, yeah. Why, why couldn't it continue? Yeah, yeah. And then if, if moral development can continue after death and could potentially go on, like, infinitely, I just don't see why this is like an objection where you're like well there's some deficiency in your character it's like okay well then they need more moral development which right. we have plenty of time for
1: yeah, yeah no yeah yeah being somebody who subscribes to the, the doctrine of purgatory i do think that yeah there can be and is uh, a significant amount of, amount of time that can be had even after death to sort of reform a person's character so that they can enjoy the beatific vision in its fullness because like yeah. if somebody was imperfect and they're, prior to death, they're not going to be able to enjoy a perfect life with God, so they'll have to undergo some sort of change in some regard. But I'm more concerned with like the ethical duties God has towards those individuals that aren't wanting to go through that sort of change. And you could say, oh, the reason that they don't want to go through that sort of change is some sort of deficiency in them. They're not responsible for that deficiency in them. So that's something that God should like correct in them.
0: Or, or, not, he or, doesn't even have to do it. That's like one thing. Because uh-huh. like I said, I think it's fine if he does that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying if you, for some reason, don't think it's fine, I think right. he, he can create the conditions where mm. we can figure this out for ourselves. Okay.
1: yeah yeah yeah. no that's really good because i was thinking about uh andrew chronich's sort of (laughs) 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 okay yeah yeah Uh, i was thinking about andrew's (laughs) (laughs) sort of uh view of how where he'll sometimes like say things like Oh, no, my view of hell is much worse than most, like, infernalist view of hell. Because I think that, like, hell is, like, the worst possible experience that one can undergo because you're, like, fully understanding the depths of the depravity of sin and things like that. And that's enough to sort of, like, change you and scare you straight, essentially, things like that. And, like, there's an ethical qualm I have with that in that, like, God's basically putting you through these series of experiences that are torturous, like oh
0: he would never do that (laughs) well well, except for all of eternity if you don't say that anyway sorry for attacking the strong view of hell but like you're saying god would never do a thing that like practically everyone who's listening and disagreeing with everything i'm saying they're like That is literally what they think he is going to do. You're saying, like, we can't co-opt your will. You can't make him go through a torturous experience. It's like, and that's why I affirm eternal (laughs) conscious torment where people are in a place eternally with no escape against their will where they're tortured for all of time. Because, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of anti-universalists suddenly become, like very like sentimental and like squishy and like oh my god they're so like Uh they're so delicate and morally sensitive to all these minute little concerns Uh where where they like don't give a fuck like two (laughs) seconds later as soon as you say yeah but what about you know these people like being tortured for all time they're like good they deserve it (laughs) and then like again you start talking about like well what if god kind of like you know fixed some deficiency in their knowledge like well that would that would be such a horrible wrong he could simply couldn't do that
1: no, I think, yeah, no, your your point, though, is, like, very good in that, like, if the only means for God to sort of reform somebody's character was through this sort of, like, horrible, torturous experience, then I could, like, see some ethical qualms with that. But you're bringing up, like, well, maybe that's not really necessary.
0: <laughs> maybe all that's really necessary is, like, put them in time out for a bit till they recognize... Well. This I'm, is I'm just really saying bad. like what what you're saying could not be uttered by someone who's defending eternal conscious uh, torment sure. like yeah, yeah, yeah. this cannot be an objection well, to the universalist view if you're defending yeah, eternal yeah. conscious unless torment. you
1: hold to like a weird sort of view that like oh maybe torture is bad if it's like
0: for some corrective purpose <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, fa- so you can't make him do this if it's for like restored, restorative restorative <laughs> corrective purposes but if it's just pure endless retribution <laughs> yeah then it's totally fine <laughs> that's yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs)
1: um because yeah like torture what it is when like torture is actually uh being employed it's because like oh this person has information that i want and i'm going to torture them until i get that information and so there's like a need or a desire that i have an end that i have in mind and i'm going to like use your suffering as a means to get that
0: end or what about i mean first of all i'm totally fine with retribution like i am kind of a retributivist and like i do think that people can deserve punishment at least um i I think it's totally bizarre that some people deny that like some people just deserve punishment you know and like it's better if they're punished than if they're not punished um so like this isn't like my universalism isn't coming from like some squishy like restorative justice position where i like am just so anti-retributivist but i mean First of all, like Eric Wrighton points out, I think Mm -hmm. that's how you pronounce his last name, is is like a Christian view of forgiveness does seem to be kind of implicitly restorative. Mm. Um, First of all, the point about (laughs) like torturing someone for restorative reasons. Okay. Maybe to just take torture off the table and just say, like, is it okay to punish someone for restorative reasons? Yes, obviously. Like, people who are for restorative justice think punishment can be okay if it's like for the right purpose, you know, like if it's for like some kind of reconciliation or like bringing people back into union or whatever it is. Like, there are different brands of Mm -hmm. um, like restorative justice, but like they think punishment can be justified. um, Or like, you know, as um, Dr. Wrighton was. Uh, describing it it seemed like he was saying like punishment can be justified like if it's towards this purpose of like reintegration of like the body of christ or something like Hmm. if you're trying to like heal things and restore things back so people are in right relationship with each other yeah Punishment can be justified for restorative... Me- well, yeah. Like, yeah. who would... Even retributivists don't deny that. Like, right. It's okay to punish people for restorative purposes. Yeah, yeah. Nobody denies that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there,
1: there can be, like, minimal amounts of... It's not torture, but it is a sort of negative it, it experience. It is punishment, though. Yeah, yeah. It is punishment, yeah. Okay. So, just while we're on that sort of topic of restorationist versus re- retributivist understandings of justice... um. One of the premises in the argument for universalism that I brought up earlier seems like it would basically remove any occasions for retribution in the world. So like we'd say that, oh, the only reasons that somebody would reject universal salvation or salvation, personal salvation is because there's some sort of lack of knowledge on their part or maybe some sort of like flaw of moral character at that, that point. And these are things that they're not responsible for. These are things that,
0: Oh, it sounds like Galen Strawson just in <laughs> the chat over here.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, any sort of if they are responsible for it, then like maybe it wouldn't be appropriate to provide them with that. And so, it seems like certain universalist like strong universalist views almost make it the case that like yeah, if any time somebody sins is because of some sort of lack of knowledge on their part or maybe because they were like built partially immorally, then how, in what way can anybody's sin be like their own fault really it's almost like who am i talking to right now it seems
0: <laughs> like i just literally it seems like i'm talking to galen strawson arguing that nobody's responsible for the way they are i thought you're like is this no, no. the thing you're defending or are you no, just no, no. like I, okay I, okay
1: i'm, I'm th- saying that like on universalist accounts it seems like there's not the space for retributivism so like on um david bentley hart's sort of more gnostic sort of approach to universalism he has the idea that like we're created in a sort of imperfect state i think he thinks that just because of classical theism is true or some form of classical theism anything that's not god is going to be initially imperfect and so and that's not something that it's their fault they're just like built kind of shitty yeah yeah Yeah.
0: like in that all shall be saved he spends a lot of time talking about like yes we have free will but like it seems like the kind of freedom that some of these people are relying on is a kind of freedom that we could not possibly have. Like, you can't really be... He does sound a little bit like Galen Strawson when he's making that argument from, like, the impossibility of being, like, ultimately responsible for your own nature or something like that. Yeah, I mean, because I was going to say, I I was like, I don't think the Universalist case hinges on that. But, yeah, I forgot that, that at least Hart does... He does make some comments about free will in that all shall be saved that are like to that effect. Like there's some kind of freedom that these people are assuming that we have that like you just you can't have that freedom, even though he does believe in free will.
1: Yeah. And that's where like it almost mitigates not just, oh, somebody chooses not to be in personal salvation with Christ, but also like any sort of sin that they might perform. It's like hard to say that they're responsible for that. And so if they're not like truly responsible for their sin because they were just created kind of shitty either in lack of knowledge or lack of moral character how can it be just to like punish them to sort of get them to that point like i do think that punitive justice makes sense when the person is responsible for the action that they performed but if they're not responsible for it then even any sort of punishment to them yeah maybe it will have like positive consequences but like a perfectly moral being isn't just i don't maybe in trying to like formulate a response specifically to you then um
0: well because i i'm the option that i take is that yeah, yeah we like obviously i'm like compatibilist pilled and i'm just like yeah yeah i think that if you do something of your own free will like you choose to do it you kind of have some knowledge of what you're doing and like you know it's bad and like you know You're going to, I think, deserve punishment for that if you do a bad thing intentionally and voluntarily and no one made you do it and that sort of thing. Like certain conditions are met and it's like, okay, even if determinism is true, this still kind of like flowed from you and your will and you should be punished for what you did because it was a bad thing. And I think that if you were like kind of an impartial agent, you could look at yourself, you could look at your own actions and be like, that was a bad thing. And of course I deserve punishment for that like you wouldn't even try to evade it you'd be like Mm -hmm. yeah i kind of had that coming at least this is just my view that i'm like spelling out i'm not trying to argue for it or anything i'm just saying i think if you meet certain conditions like you're doing it because you want to do it you know just as a first approximation you do some bad thing you know it's bad you did it because you wanted to do it and i think like if you're being honest if you're being if you get punished for that you're like yeah i kind of had that coming yeah yeah so i just don't think it's impermissible to punish people um, even if, like, determinism is true.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, then I wanted to sort of hone in on that argument for universalism based upon, like, oh, well, for somebody to reject salvation must be due to some sort of ignorance on their part or some imperfection of character on their part.
0: Can I just add one thing to why, uh-huh. why I think that? So, like... God is a perfectly loving being, you know, he's this being of perfect goodness and love and whatever. And I'm saying like, we're rational beings. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is some connection between the rational and the good, okay, which is yeah. why I think there's that connection. So if you're a perfectly rational being, it's not just about like self-interest. It's not just about like prudential rationality. Uh-huh. I'm saying like, there is some deep connection between like yeah. rationality and goodness in the way that a lot of like moral non-naturalists in meta-ethics think about rationality and goodness. So, like, if you're a rational being and you're concerned with the good or you're thinking about, like, a perfectly good being or a being of perfect love or something like that, then, like, I just think it, it's unavoidable that you're going to, if you have perfect knowledge and understanding, want to be in a relationship with yeah. that being.
1: No, it's interesting because there's this view that I want to say Richard Swinburne holds. Is it, is it motivational internalism or reasons internalism that it's the view that, like, it, for, if you know what the good is you will automatically be motivated to try to bring it about so like that's his sort of like basis for saying that god is all good is because well god's all knowing and so he knows all of the reasons that are out there to do certain actions and because he knows it uh intimately he's also motivated to bring about that good thing and so yeah i'd wonder how like somebody like swinburne would respond to this sort of argument because like if he thinks that oh for The reasons that people aren't going to go to hell is, or sorry, aren't going to go to heaven is because they're not motivated to seek the good, but that must mean that they're like ignorant of what, what the reasons are. And so,
0: yeah, yeah. Cause I mean, it would be sort of akin to being like, well, look, that little kid just chose to jump into the pit. It's like, it's a kid. They don't know what they're doing. Like they're so limited in their cognitive faculties. And it's like, obviously if that were rectified, they would not jump in the pit.
1: Yeah. You know? So I wanted to sort of like explore with you like the full entailments of what it means to be a rational agent. Like cuz it seems like in order for this argument to sort of go through it almost requires that a rational agent in recognizing what the better option would be would naturally choose that better option. And I think I don't know if that's like a strict requirement of to be rational. I I would I would think that to be a rational agent would be to yeah, when given the options between a good and a bad scenario would be motivated to choose the good one. But if given an option between two good scenarios, it seems perfectly rational to me for them to choose either one, even if they recognize that one of those other scenarios is technically better. So like an example I can bring forward is like, consider prospective parents. They have the option of living in a world in which they have only one child or living in a world in which they have two children. Now. The world in which they have two children is going to be objectively better because there's a second child and more good in the world. Um, and let's say that like having a second child doesn't like diminish their their I don't know, exhaustion or, or like level of energy and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Um, if they were to sort of recognize that and still choose to have only one child, I'm not. I don't want to say that they're acting irrationally, even though they recognize this is a lesser good than than what I could achieve. And it almost seems like in order for this argument for universalism to work out is it requires that anyone given the option between greater or lesser goods will always have to choose the greater good. And I just want to explore with you, like, do you think that's sort of a requirement for this argument?
0: Um, No, I don't think so. Um, I think there are like, I've tried to express this just in passing where it's like, I think that universalism can be Kind of um, open-ended where it, it basically just means not eternal conscious torment and mm-hmm. not annihilationism. but as long as I mean like Mormons call themselves universalists and sure. stuff and like yeah, yeah. Um, their view like they have like these three different like kingdoms of heaven they're not all equally good. and the reason some people go into the lower kingdoms instead of the higher kingdom is because it just better suits their nature right So like what's good for them is determined by their nature. Everyone is like yeah you're you're not going to enter the celestial kingdom, like you wouldn't even like it if you did mm-hmm. you know, like you're just not cut out for that kind of thing like you're, it wouldn't be good for you and it wouldn't right. be good for anyone else, like you're fine where you are, you know, but like that doesn't mean there has to be like uh death or torture, you know right. like it's just like different kinds of kingdoms of heaven, so right. I feel like universalism can um." accommodate that kind of thing like there can be multiple good options even though there's the best option like the beatific vision or theosis like however you understand that it's like yeah there's the best option then there are other good options and not everyone will end up with the best option maybe that's like a free choice and maybe that's even the best thing for them given their nature and everything but I just don't feel like that's a non-universalist view. Okay. Just to say, well, not everyone will experience the beatific vision or enter the celestial kingdom. Okay. I don't really see that as non-universalism, like right. not really, you know?
1: Okay, so yeah, maybe like a minimal universalism is something like all lies are ultimately good, maybe. Or something like that, to where like there's no life that is on the whole bad. Whereas it seems like on non-universalist pictures, that's generally the case.
0: Like I think that's way too weak because like that I feel like that's compatible with annihilationism. Is it? Yeah. But I'm thinking
1: of like somebody that like Hitler or something like that. Let's say he underwent like lived a life of evil and then maybe underwent some sort of torture and then was annihilated, like on a sort of <laughs> yeah. uh, annihilationist nihilistic yeah It, it is picture.
0: nihilistic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I wonder, would they, like, that would seem to say that Hitler's life on the whole wasn't ultimately good. It was, like, negative in a large extent. And I want to say that, well, universalists reject that sort of picture, and so that's why they'd want to say, no, all lives, even Hitler, uh, have, on the whole, will have a, a benevolent life or a good life.
0: But don't you think you could have an on-the-whole good life that still came to an end?
1: Yeah. Well, then yeah, it's compatible okay. with annihilationism, I think. Okay. Yeah. So then, yeah, because universalists think that all creatures will have an eternal good life. They're I not going to be killed at
0: some point permanently yeah. and irreversibly. Or go to sleep or whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, so like, I know that there's some like uh, atheistic sort of criticisms of eternal heaven from the idea that like oh it'll eventually become boring or something like that. Do you think that somebody could be a universalist and still think that yeah, eventually people will be annihilated after they've in, uh, like gone through all of the versions of heaven that they find enjoyable.
0: No, okay. So this is wildly speculative, so I kind of am like hesitating. What what were we talking about just a second ago? Oh. <laughs> about okay, wait. So like different good options, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. I think that like the god case is not going to be like any other example that you could give. Okay. So that's why it's just those kinds of analogies. Ad hoc. Like, well, <laughs> uh, special pleading for Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, like what's better than the beatific vision? Like a really good smoothie? Yeah. Like it's just say like, well, what if you had a second smoothie? It's like, that's just not analogous to being like having the beatific vision versus not having it. Yeah. Like, I just don't think that those are perfectly like, I mean, you just can't really compare if, if it is what it, what Christians say it is. I mean, yeah. then it can't be compared to anything. I think it's true that a rational being can pick different options and still be like a rational being, you know, whatever. Like, I think that you yeah. can have multiple things in front of you and, like, each of them can be rational for you to do, right. if that's your point. And, like, the the only thing is, I don't think that there's really an analogy between, like, I can believe this thing, which is justified, mm-hmm. or that thing, which is also justified. like. Yeah, I think that you can accept that, but yeah. I don't think that's analogous to being like, I can have the beatific vision or I can just kind of float into space or something like, Okay. you know, like, I just don't think that that really is, um, you know, equivalent at all
1: yeah okay so then yeah i I think what i was like bringing this up to do with like okay there's this argument for universalism and i think that the argument for universalism almost like implicitly presumes that a rational agent will choose the best option that is available to them and i'm
0: trying to say it doesn't presume that. but even if it did you'd be fine
1: yeah yeah your point is that like yeah maybe that's false and so maybe this argument doesn't go through but that's still compatible with universalism yeah okay
0: So do you want to hear my super speculative um, (laughs) shit? Okay, so I was thinking, like, along the lines of Josh Rasmussen, like, well, if you're given infinite chances, like, eventually you'll kind of do the thing that's uh, best for you. Uh Once you finally, like, um, have more knowledge and, like, you're a better person, like, eventually you'll enter into a relationship with God willingly, and he'll probably have a hand in that. Like, I doubt that he would just, like, have nothing to do with that whatsoever, even if it's not, like, coercive. He would still have something to do with like wanting you to like draw nearer to him or like seeking after you or something like the one sheep that wanders away or something right. like that. So there's that. But I do think that like, you know, in the fullness and eternity of, you know, heaven or t- so like, here's something that bothers me that atheists will say sometimes like, uh, heaven would right. get really boring. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Like you'll just, you'll, you'll be in perfect bliss and it will just get boring. I don't think it would get boring. But even if it did. I don't see why you'd be, like, prevented from leaving, Uh and, like, I think about, you know, the idea of pre-existence sometimes, or the idea of, like, past lives, and I don't see any reason why time couldn't be infinite in both directions, where we are, like, in this kind of great story like Josh envisions. And like, I can see it kind of not just going all in one direction, I guess, like hmm. we could be on this progression towards heaven and then we eventually over eons get there and then maybe it would get boring or maybe for some other reason we would leave and yeah. then end up eventually in a state like this. If it really is necessary for things to be changing in order for us not to be bored and like to not just, you know, want to be annihilated, then like I can see people leaving heaven Like, either to come to Earth or to go to even other places. So when people talk about pre-existence or, like, you know, NDEs, where there are so many people who are like, I felt like I was returning to a place I'd been before. Mm -hmm. Like, there are just all these little hints that, like, I don't necessarily take seriously. Where I'm like, oh, yeah, the the Mormon idea of pre-existence. It's not like I'm adopting all these things. I'm just kind of speculating, like, well, if Christianity is true or theism is true and, like you know, I don't think that that is incompatible with pre-existence. It would kind of make more sense, actually, if if the start of, like, our story was not, like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. It would kind of make more sense to me if, it, if there wasn't that kind of absolute beginning. But anyway, it seems like if you're going to say there's all this development after our deaths, and there's all this change and evolution, eventually when you get to this end point, like, I don't know if it makes sense to be like, you would just be there for all of eternity and nothing would change. Hmm. It's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I put a very low probability on the idea that like heaven would be so boring eventually. Like right, I would want right. to leave. It's like, or I mean, let's just suppose that's true. Mm-hmm. Well then like, why couldn't you leave? And right. like, how do you know that we're not in the middle of some story that began with you leaving heaven to begin with? Which again, is what some people report in their NDE experiences. Yeah. And then we left to come here for some reason. And I don't know why, because if we did do that, then we don't remember why or what was before this. And yeah, it, I mean, I'm sort of just taking pretty standard Christian ideas about a lot of evolution and change after our deaths and just saying like, well, why couldn't that also be true in the other direction of time? Right. Yeah. And why couldn't it be infinite in both directions of time? I mean, that kind of makes sense to me in some way where like time is infinite and we're kind of going into different realms. I mean, if theism is true, the possibilities are really kind of endless, you yeah. know? And, like, if we have this immaterial soul that is, like, yeah, you're going to, like, go to purgatory and then you're going to get to heaven, it's like, well, why wouldn't there be something that happened after that, you know? I just don't see any reason to rule it out.
1: Yeah. No, it is interesting, and especially, like, I think within, like, a Hinduistic sort of cosmology, that that's sort of, like, as I understand it, the sort of picture of... <laughs> oh reincarnation like first there was like all the souls with god and then they were in a sort of beatific vision of some sort and then like some of those souls like after a while just decided like i want to try something new and so they became incarnate and then lived out a life of sin and different things like that and like go through the sort of like reincarnation highs and lows of the human experience that are all out there before eventually returning back to it that sort of state um that's not the catholic view of course (laughs) um but, yeah, I think you're right that, like, if theism is true, then that's certainly a possibility.
0: I, I don't know why I even thought of that. I can't remember which question you asked me that prompted Oh, that's that.
1: right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, because I we were talking about, like, okay, what does it even mean for universalism to be true? And I was, like, under the impression that it's like, maybe it's, like, eternal state of being in heaven. But if, like, what the, the picture that you sort of p- painted of, like, oh, maybe it's not eternal necessarily because, like, people can can leave heaven and then maybe return to heaven and things well, like that. that's
0: why i was saying minimally it's just not eternal conscious torment that you never escape from and right. not annihilationism okay necessary for universalism is rejecting okay. those two things and yeah, yeah, like yeah. i think universalists are free to believe this kind of speculative picture i'm painting about pre-existence okay. and then yeah you know yeah there was this pre-existence and then like after our deaths there's going to be all these further changes And who knows how long they could go on for trillions and trillions of years before you get to heaven. And then you spend, you know, trillions and trillions of years in heaven. And then I'm just saying, maybe on like, you know, after a Googleplex years in heaven, maybe you leave for a little while. Like, I I don't know. It just doesn't seem that crazy to me, you know. And like, I don't understand why God would uh, say no. Like, why not? I mean, especially if you're going on about like how important it is for God not to stop our, you know, free choices. No. Yeah. You know, even if it's like. I don't know, like, especially if it's not all just about, I don't know, like, sort of one dimension of goodness, but if there are other dimensions of goodness, too, like aesthetic goodness, Mm -hmm. then I can kind of see why people might leave heaven.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Okay, so then, sort of tied back to, or looping back around to the notion of rationality is, so, for somebody to, like, actively choose not to undergo a significant moral reformation so that they do become a, a perfectly moral character... Do you think that sort of decision is going to be irrational for them to do or is it something that could be in line with rationality given that like both options are technically good for them in some sense even though one is obviously much better for them
0: i mean i think if you don't want to improve i mean you said become a like perfect person it's like yeah. well i mean i never think about that because it's not attainable at least it's not really like i can't imagine attaining it so like i never even think about that but right. if you're just talking about like do you like you think about something about yourself that you think is bad or don't like? It's like, do you want to change that? And it, are you being irrational if you don't want to change that? It's like, yeah, I think you're being kind of irrational okay. if you don't want to change something, some flaw within yourself.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: It might not come all at once. I'm just saying, like piecemeal, like you notice something about yourself that's like not good and you're like, I wish I didn't do that or I wish I wasn't like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if somebody recognized a flaw within themselves in their moral character or something like that, and it's like, perfectly content with living out the rest of the life their life with that flaw you'd be like they're acting irrationally because that's not something that a a rational person would do
0: i mean i guess all else equal they should want to fix that you know i mean if you understand that it's bad and that you have reason to not do it and like it would be better if you did this other thing yeah then like and you just never even i mean like i'm assuming it's like attainable you know if it's totally unattainable then like you know that would be something else to consider right. but like yeah, if it seems kind of attainable then like wh- why wouldn't you do it you know yeah and if you didn't it would almost seem like maybe you, you need like a i don't know different friends or like different examples or like you need some moral inspiration or mm. motivation or something like but yeah it does seem like a um, a deficiency in some sense i don't know if it's strictly irrational but i'm very tempted to say it's irrational okay yeah
1: yeah, yeah. cuz i do think that like i don't know maybe the strong divide between universalists and non-universalists is going to be, according to our like underst our our notion of like sin in some respects, to where like it seems like what does it call it like the Socratic understanding of failure or moral failure is going to be due to some sort of ignorance or privation of character of some in some regards. But on, Wait, on why is that the Socratic? Because uh, like so- Socrates, or at least. Socrates as the mouthpiece for Plato, sort of held that if you perceive the good as it is, you will automatically be inclined towards obtaining it. And so his whole understanding of people do things that are wrong, not because of some sort of like failure on their parts, it's due to like a lack of knowledge. And that's why he had this sort of like, I don't know, optimistic view that like, oh, if we can just teach people to become good people, like... I can like show them their flaw in reasoning and then from that they'll be able to be a good person now, <laughs> which is great. And it is like a, yeah, there's something to that in that like, yeah, a lot of times people do things without thinking about it. And if people were to think about it, then they'd probably be a lot more good people out in the world. And then maybe on the non-universalist camp, there's maybe more of a acceptance of a sort of Aristotelian understanding to where yeah people will still act out of ignorance, but it's not it's not an ignorance that's they're not responsible for like there there can be occasions to where you'll you do something wrong, and the reason that you did it was because you neglected to know the the correct thing so like maybe an example is like, oh, you brought back the car to your dad's, but you didn't bring it back with like a full tank. But you never checked the fuel gauge to know whether it was wrong, uh, full or empty. And so you could said be said to act, do something wrong out of ignorance, but it's an ignorance that you're culpable for. And I think on the Socratic view, you're not culpable for the ignorance that you have. It's like, oh, how can I be judged for something that I didn't know? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And yeah, so...
0: But if you're if you're willfully ignorant or right. if you're ignorant and it like it's just if you were a good person you would have thought of it then it yeah. does seem like you're culpable
1: yeah 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 exactly and i think that's sort of the the difference at least yeah i guess you could probably be an aristotelian in this regard and still be a universalist like the sort of eric right hand view that like well people will give it an infinite amount of chances they're going to eventually uh move towards the good but on certain views of universalism it seems like it does presume that sort of socratic understanding that like look the reason they're not doing the right thing is because they're just they don't know what the right thing is and so god needs to sort of teach them or train them to do the right thing
0: yeah well i mean don't you think there's some truth to that though where it's like i mean you can barely understand what god is and then you say like oh i'm rejecting god it's like you're fully culpable for that and you'll be tortured for all time or you'll be annihilated or turned into a dog or whatever (laughs) and it's just like okay well I don't think that people really have a good grasp of what God is, which is like fully his fault, by the way, because he created us with very limited cognitive faculties. So it's like he's culpable for it. Like, I mean, we have limited cognitive faculties. We can't understand what God is. We can't understand the weight of what it is to reject God. And then it's like, oh, you are fully culpable for that, even though you're not responsible for these limitations, which any reasonable person should see. Again, it's like the kid playing around the pit. It's like, well, I want to jump in the pit. It's like, mm. you don't know what you want. Like, mm. you don't know what you're asking for. And if you had more developed cognitive faculties, you would understand that you wouldn't jump in the pit. It's like, the only disanalogy here is like, God created us with those, you know, very limited cognitive faculties. And then some people want to say he like turns around and like blames us and hold us holds us like eternally accountable yeah. for these limitations that we are ultimately not responsible for. Even if you believe in libertarian free will, we're not responsible for like our cognitive limitations. Yeah, you know, in the same way that like a kid is not responsible for their limitations.
1: Yeah, I guess like I don't think that in order to choose to accept God's loving union, you have to know the fullness of what no. I'm God saying is. if
0: you reject it, you don't know what you're rejecting. Sure. So I mean, like, how can you but be if, fully if you accept for it, it? You
1: don't know what you're accepting. You, either, exactly. You don't effect. fully
0: know what you're accepting either. But I'm saying like. Why would it be held against you where you're suffering like eternal damnation, whether it's, you know, annihilation or like you're being damned to hell? Uh Because it's like, well, I mean, you're rejecting God, but there's no possibility that you fully understand what you're doing when you do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. And and, like, that's why the Catholic Church teaches that like moral sin is something that is done voluntarily under full knowledge to where like people are acting out doing what they know well, it,
0: but it's not wrong. about mortal sin it's about like the the sin of infinite gravity of rejecting god you know of like because yeah. that's supposed to be this big scary like medicine that's somehow different from all the other sins like at least that's how william lane craig talks about it okay. like oh well the si- yeah sins finite sins warrant finite right. punishment whatever so he grants that unlike a lot of other uh psychopaths who think that like you know infinite punishment is warranted for finite sins. He's like, no, no, no finite sins, finite punishment. Yeah, that makes sense. But rejecting God is a medicine of infinite gravity. It's an actual infinite, everybody of it's an actual (laughs) infinite of sin gravity. And that's why you go to hell forever. Right. And it's like, okay, but I don't understand how you can do something that you like, do not fully understand what you're doing because in order for you to fully understand a rejection of God, uh-huh. You have to understand God. You have to understand the thing that you're rejecting mm. and what it means to reject. Okay, i'm I'm thinking about a relationship with God, and I'm thinking about God and I'm rejecting that. Okay, well, in order to be like fully culpable for that, it seems like you need to have some kind of informed consent. Yeah. You have to like know what you're doing when you do that. Yeah. William Lane Craig is like, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're fully cul- God is so offended. You know, he's, like, so thin-skinned that you rejected him that he's going to, like, light you on fire for all of eternity. If you're talking about someone with limited faculties, who, like, doesn't have perfect rationality, doesn't have perfect information, mm. and they're not morally perfect either. You're talking about all these people who have these limitations, and then you're holding them, like, fully culpable and, like, allowing them to be tormented for all of time because of their medicine of rejecting God. Like, it's just fucking stupid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, is it's tricky cuz yeah, a lot of the criticisms of infernalism don't really apply to the view of hell that I, I I've sort yeah, of Yeah, I
0: mean like, that it's it's made so much more like profane because of the punishment that William Lane Craig has in mind. Right, yeah, yeah. But you're saying you'll you'll just be turned into a dog. And it's like, okay, well that's not as bad as yeah. what William Lane Craig yeah, yeah, is saying, yeah, yeah. but like still it doesn't make any sense to really really punish someone and like hold them culpable for rejecting a thing that they can't really fully understand. Like, yeah you're fully accountable for this choice that you made to reject God. And now you're being like diminished in your faculties or something.
1: Yeah. I guess like, yeah. Understanding of what the punishment really is. Cause like if the chief punishment of hell is the privation of like beatific vision, I don't know. It seems like there can be cases where somebody does make a decision and they weren't fully informed of what the outcome was. And they're, that was perfectly under their control. Like we can talk about like a game show where like, okay, I have these two briefcases in front of you. you choose briefcase one or briefcase two and you don't really realize it, but briefcase two has a million dollars within it.
0: And and this is how you want God to be the game show host and one briefcase is heaven and one briefcase is hell. I mean, here's the thing. That's actually a good analogy. I think it works against the point you're trying to make, but I'm saying like a universalist could use that analogy. like You think of God as like a game show host putting up two suitcases. You don't really understand which one is which and you're like that one and he's like hell for you And then <laughs> someone else is like that one and you're like yeah, eternal yeah. bliss for you yeah neither yeah. of you have any understanding of what you're doing but like well not it's not like you don't have yeah. any understanding it's just like you don't have the level of understanding where it's like this is fully informed consent. Like whether you accept it or reject it, you just don't really understand it. Yeah, you know?
1: it almost raises an ethical quandary then for universalism as well. If like people are choosing to, yeah, live in the beatific vision without knowing that, oh, this is going to be a perfect bliss of happiness. You, mm-hmm. you, Your current mind can't even comprehend the extent of what hell, heaven is going to be for you. Can you really have informed consent in that regard
0: either? Well, I think if it's a good thing, it's like it's better than you can imagine is not like well you can't have it it's better than you can imagine <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that yeah. doesn't make any sense but okay. saying like no i can't let you do that it's worse than you can imagine right so if there's like an obvious asymmetry yeah, there. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah well yeah that's some versions of hell um but if, if it's a difference between like oh i'm choosing this state of retaining or ratifying my imperfect moral character and living out the rest of eternity like that because i'm content with who i am and i don't want to go through the, the arduous process of becoming a perfect person. I don't Mm -hmm. want to do that. Versus, oh, I do want to go through that. It's going to be painful and difficult because like, yeah, it goes through admitting my own failures and like accepting that and then moving on and through time becoming a perfect person in union with God. And it seems like both of those have like some aspect of goodness to that. But of course, on like most forms of hell, it's like, oh, I'm choosing to reject God. And because of that, suffer for all of eternity and i can't comprehend the extent of how bad that's going to be and so i can't but what you're saying
0: is also pretty bad like where it's like okay you're basically going to become like severely disabled cognitively Mm. yeah yeah okay well that's still bad i mean it's not if it's like well look you're just gonna be like or i don't know what you're envisioning exactly but it's like it's not hellish you know it's not torturous but it seems like you are saying there's no escape. And you're, like, being dumbed down. You're, like, turning into this, like, subhuman primate, basically. It's like, well, okay, that's not good. And um, I don't really get the argument for why that, that's, like, motivated anyway. But, like, it, it seems like you could just have different levels of heaven or, okay. like, different kingdoms of heaven without turning people into uh, animals, you know? <clears throat> and it just seems like a, you could have all the advantages of the view that you're talking about. without this weird downside where you're like dumbing people down into animals, which is just like a totally pointless bad thing. That's yeah, that's fair.
1: And like in the episode with Kyle Allender, I sort of elaborated a little bit more, but like my reasons for thinking that like, rather than just keeping the, their moral character at their, where they're at and then they get to live in the sort of like minimal happiness of some sort is that like, I think that God would like try to restrain sin and so if somebody's like moral character is like disposed to do the bad thing when they're given the opportunity to do so, that's going to be kind of bad. And so it would be better. Why, to, why can't
0: you just put them in circumstances where they can't do the bad thing yeah, rather I, than just take away their like ability? Yeah. Like there are, there are different ways. If you're saying like, well, look, I want to take away their ability to do bad things. One way of doing that is turning them into like a very, very dumbed down animal. Yeah, yeah. Another way is just kind of like not letting them in the circumstances. Right. Yeah. So like you could just sort of if someone is like, I cannot stop being a pedophile and I don't want to stop being a pedophile. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well then you're just not gonna be around kids anymore. Yeah, yeah. Why well, I mean, okay, so you have successfully stopped them yeah. from like hurting kids and from doing this evil thing that they refuse to stop doing. Yeah. And it's like Okay. Even in this very like um fatalist kind of like pessimistic world where you can just never reform anyone to be anything better than what they are right now, which I don't agree with, but like right, right. especially in like the fullness and eternity of time and like the resources that God has. But it's like, okay, let just grant that like they're just going to freely choose to do this bad thing and they will just never stop. Yeah. It's like okay, you could dumb them down in the way you're saying, or you could just you could there are other things you could change so they can't do this anymore you know yeah and if you could if you're going to talk about forcibly uh basically lobotomizing them maybe you could just forcibly remove their pedophilic desires sure that seems less bad to me it's like just forcibly remove their sinful desire is like and if you even make the case like well that's bad it's like okay but it's less bad than lobotomizing them which is what you're suggesting
1: yeah no and and like i i guess the reason to think that a full lobotomy, a lobotomy is required is because the idea that like a rejection of moral reformation isn't just like, oh, I have this one problem that I need to get rid of. It's like, no, I have no interest in actually like becoming a better person at all. And so that is kind of like the entirety of who you are. And so, yeah, in thinking about which is really a better situation, a pedophile who's not who wants to, like, rape kids but is not given any opportunity to do so versus a non-rational creature that has no pedophilic tendencies but is able to, like, live out a happy life. It almost seems like the pedophile the that isn't able to rape kids is, well, like, less happy in some respect.
0: Aren't, aren't you talk? I mean, when you're talking about, like, dumbing people down, yeah, it sounds like you're not saying you're really removing their desires or changing any other aspect of their nature. Like... If you turn them into chimps, they'd just be violent chimps now. True. And it's like, oh, well, that's better because they're not moral agents anymore. Uh-huh. And like, so I guess they're doing the same thing, but they're no longer responsible. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, it's technically better. And I'm like, I, I, I mean, sure. But like, <laughs> if you are talking about removing their desires, then just leave them as humans and remove their desires. Yeah. That's the obvious answer. But like, if you're talking about like, well, I'm not going to change their nature other than this one aspect of their nature, which is okay to change for some reason. I'm just going to turn them into animals. It's like, again, like I want to say, if you can change that part of their nature, if that's permissible, then why not change the other part? Right, yeah. But I mean, okay, setting that aside, here's the thing, like, moral luck kind of enters into this at a certain point. We're not Germans in World War II, you know, so like... We never really had the opportunity to be like, I reject Mm. Nazism or whatever. And the fact is a lot of us are lucky that we never had that chance because we would have been Nazis or we would have been good Germans. Like just statistically, that is most people. You either would have been complicit or silent or Nazis. You would have been cruel and you might have even like enjoyed it. You know, you might have been a Nazi and you might have been like, hell yeah, Nazism, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) So in a sense, we are lucky to not find ourselves in all kinds of circumstances where we are the kind of person where if we were in that situation, we would do that and we're not in that situation. And that's the only reason we don't do that. So like, why wouldn't that apply to like this serial unrepentant pedophile where it's like, don't you think it would be better if we just kind of kept them the way they are, but just put them in circumstances where they don't have the opportunity to be evil in that way. Look, just put them in a different circumstance and Eventually, this just won't be an issue, Okay. and then maybe he's reflect and like it just never comes up. And enough time goes on that like you know there's just other things that happen, and then maybe he'll be reflective for a moment and be like, "Wow, I guess it's like a good thing that I never find myself in this situation because I would do the bad thing, or like there's a high chance that I would do the bad thing." Yeah, if I, and it's like we're all in that situation all the time because there, we're morally lucky in many many ways.
1: Yeah, I guess like my reasons for thinking that is like is due to sort of like the consent of of the of the damned to where like if the damned has no desire to go through that sort of moral reformation of character, whether or not it's permissible on God's part to nonetheless put them through those sorts of circumstances that will change them and change their perspective on these sorts of things. And yeah, I can I I guess I can kind of see both ways on, on that. Um,
0: well, do you think they're consenting to have their rational faculties taken away? I guess probably not. But
1: whether the, like, the removal of their rational faculties is, I guess, still in line with some of their intentions. So, so like, if God provides them with the opportunity, like, look, you can either undergo a significant moral reformation or you can remain who you are. And then your point is that, like, well, if they want to remain who they are... And then God's sort of like depriving them of th- these features
0: that they have. Mm-hmm. Did they consent to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so... Well, because it seems like a hang-up for you, like a thing that you want to avoid, yeah. the thing that you view as very, very bad, is like God coming in and just being like, I'm changing this about your nature, poof. Like yeah. I'm just twisting the dials. And you don't, you don't <laughs> consent to it. You don't understand it. But I'm just coming in because I know what's best. And there, I'm pressing the button. Now you're different. It seems like you really don't want... That's, like, morally unacceptable as far as you're concerned, but, like, it seems like your view involves that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like, any sort of non-universalist case will have to rely upon some sort of, like, in my opinion, some sort of view like this, this sort of, like, oh, there's sort of ethical boundaries for God. That's why he doesn't make it so everyone wants to be in perfect union with him. And so, like, yeah, if somebody doesn't have that desire to be in perfect union with God and then... Yeah. What is God left to do basically with them? And yeah, we can probably like wrap up cuz it's been a good conversation and I really appreciate yeah, you being able to sort of like go over this with me. Um and, and yeah, there's things that you've said here that I definitely want to like re-listen to and like think about further and especially yeah, what you brought up about how like well, if you're God's like inhibiting their faculties, is that something that they consented to? And so, like, you'll still have this sort of, like, ethical quandary there. Yeah,
0: yeah, and you can't have an absolute ban on God stepping in and being, like, changing your nature, mm-hmm. and I'm just doing it, you know. It's yeah. like, well, your, your view of hell kind of involves that, and, like, that seems to be one of your reasons for rejecting universalism is, like, God shouldn't do that or something. And yeah. I've tried to say, like, well, he wouldn't have to. Right. But I'm saying, like, you're sort of setting that boundary there, and it seems like you're crossing it with your view of hell.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I can see how, like, part of my problem is that, like, I'm responding to certain particular Universalists, like, maybe, like, David Bentley Hart, and, like, I have a significant amount of disagreements with his, like, whole theology and things like that, but, yeah, your point is, like, look, you don't need to endorse Universal, or, like, uh, David Bentley Hart's, like, originism with regards to, like, the the whole cosmology and things mm-hmm. like that. You can be, like, you can hold to libertarian free will you can hold to all these other things as well and like still be a universalist and so yeah i'll have to think about the most plausible form of universalism which is like in line with my other like pre-commitments and things like that so yeah
0: yeah yeah well no i've i've really enjoyed it i'm glad we picked this topic yeah yeah. (laughs) um but i do have some kind of like you know interest in this topic and some kind of like bias towards wanting theism to be true you know like Mm -hmm. if i can make it work i would really like to make it work because it's like the best way things could be yeah like foundational reality is all powerful and perfectly loving and everything it's like that's just the best way that things could be and it kind of guarantees that the future is going to be good and that reality on the whole will be good i mean i don't i don't agree with david bentley hart either on like certain points like he's a classical theist and he says oh classical theism entails universalism and it's like i don't even know what classical theism is when it comes down to it but you don't have to be a classical theist to be a universalist, like Andrew yeah. Hironich is not a classical theist. Okay, Yeah. there is still
1: one other thing. I know okay, you're yeah, sympathetic towards limited, limited forms of theism. Do you think that that's going to sort of come in tension with
0: universalism to some regard? No, because I still think that God is, like, very powerful and very knowledgeable and very wise. And, like, I, I mean, I think the most likely constraints... Um, are kind of the ones that every christian and theist like talks about like you've been talking about like yeah. our moral limitations and stuff like that and like what do you do with someone who's just totally unrepentant right. and that kind of thing and i'm kind of like yeah i think that for a limited god like as long as he's still very powerful and like very uh knowledgeable and that sort of thing you can still end up with like a pretty something pretty close to universalism, which is what, um, some forms of limited Christianity buy into like multiple kingdoms of heaven. Like God can't ensure that everybody ends up in like the, like the highest form of heaven or something. It's like, but his limitations there seem more to do with like our natures, you know, like, well, look, your nature is what it is and your nature dictates what's good for you to some extent. Mm-hmm. And you're going to end up in this kingdom of heaven and not that kingdom of heaven, ultimately because of your nature. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and it that still be like, is, to me is like a form of universalism.
1: Right. And it wouldn't be like the morally implausible Calvinism because it's not like this limited God created them to have that particular nature. It's like yeah. something that the universe or unguided nature sort of did that. It's yeah. like, yeah, you just happen to be this sort of person.
0: I just, I think uh, even a limited God, if God is what he's said to be, like, traditionally, where it's like, he's the creator of the universe. Mm. I mean, some of the things that are, like, in scripture are, like, he knit us in our mother's womb and, like, knows the number of hairs on our head and that kind of thing. It's like, just given the idea that God is, like, a creator and that he's, like, kind of involved in our creation in particular... It just, I find it kind of implausible that like, oh shoot, I can't save everyone after all. It's like, even a limited God, I think because he's God, I mean, just because he's limited doesn't mean like, he's like the mayor of Boise. (laughs) He's not like, (laughs) he's not that limited. (laughs) He's not like a, you know, oh, he's as powerful as uh, the president of Sudan. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean no he's still god he's right. just it's just he can't like he doesn't have like a magic wand like he can't do anything that's logically possible or some like super right high maximal degree of like you know omnipotence like that he still qualifies as a god so i, yeah. I just don't see it being like a major issue for universalism
1: yeah no that's a good point because like i bring this up because uh thoughtful saint on twitter he's sort of like made this case that like well if you're you accept if you endorse a sort of omnipotent view of god then like you should be a universalist but like mm-hmm. i I, yes. I endorse a limited view of god that's why i'm not a universalist but yeah the point you make is so good like look if god is still the one making us and like in- like being our ultimate guardian and things like that he might not be like all powerful but still he would be powerful enough like given the fact that we're the objects of his creation to be able to yeah accept that full perfect end end to our life yeah
0: and it also just seems implausible that like again given other things in scripture at least like the image of, like, the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one, Mm -hmm. it just seems implausible that at some point God is just going to give up on some of his children, like, where he's just like, eh. Like, I can totally see, again, if I'm just using the analogy of fatherhood, it's like, Uh well, surely you would give your kids some space under many circumstances. You'd be like, look, they don't want anything to do with me or the good or whatever. And, like, I can imagine being like, I just have to take a hands-off approach or, like, I just have to let them go like be like the prodigal son and just go live in sin for a while. Mm. Um, because there's nothing I can say to them to so like, yeah. and it's like, I can see um, parents having to do that. Yeah. And, but I just, I don't see parents like giving up on their kids, you right. know? Well, <laughs> <laughs> good parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I think a perfectly loving parent is not going to like give up on their kid and they might take a hands off approach. So they might let them really hurt themselves and wander away and that kind of thing. But like, I don't think they're going to let anything really irreversible and excessive happen if it's in their power like this is another example from andrew where he's like even if you're talking about like an adult child Uh parents are going to like stop their child from like attempting suicide or something like that like if it's something really bad they don't care about your free will like they don't care about the fact that you're an adult with who's responsible for their own actions and everything like if it's bad enough they're going to try to stop you yeah um so i mean i don't know when i reflect on like the parenthood stuff and just certain things from scripture it's like even if god is limited i don't see at one point he's going to like give up Mm -hmm. on certain people yeah i mean i don't see why he wouldn't intervene in pretty dramatic ways if something really really bad was going to happen right um Mm -hmm. so i feel like those are certain reasons to think like the limited god thesis is still compatible with universalism
1: okay yeah yeah no thanks
0: all right nice talking to you man yeah thanks thanks. for coming on for the 85th time yeah probably the most frequent guest at this point (laughs)